Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, I'm talking with Dr. David Pepin about development of novel non-hormonal contraceptives targeting AMHR2. David, welcome to the show. And nice to meet you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely, absolutely. So as all first-time guests, it's a bit of a tradition here on the show. How did you get into reproductive medicine? So my journey in reproduction started almost more than 18 years ago when I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I'm a native, uh, I'm French-Canadian, mm-hmm. I, and I did my studies at the University of Ottawa. And it's there that I met my first mentor, Barbara Vanderheiden, and mm-hmm. she was studying follicular development and also ovarian cancer. And that, that's, that was pretty typical at the time. Often reproductive scientists, would, and particularly those focused on the ovary, would do both research on ovarian mm-hmm. cancer and on reproduction you know, she had trained with the likes of John Epic, so she you know, a, a long history of, of looking at reproduction. And, and, and she's the one, basically, who, who introduced me to the ovary and, and you know, gave me that spark that, mm-hmm. that left me uh, uh, down this path. Mm. And so I ended up you know, working with her and doing a master's uh, and then eventually a PhD in where I studied chromatin remodeling, so basically in, in granulose cells. So basically how granulose cells mm-hmm. differentiate how they prepare for LH, you know, how they become steroidogenic, mm-hmm. and how their transcription is regulated. And at the, at the time, I was also working on ovarian cancer, so I was doing a little bit oh, of wow. both. And then for my postdoctoral studies, I actually moved to the United States. I went to Mass General Hospital, mm-hmm. and there that's where I met my second mentor, <laughs> uh, Patricia Donahoe, who uh-huh. uh, actually had, is the person that cloned the anti-mullerian hormone or Mm -hmm. AMH in 1986. Mm -hmm. So uh, she was working on ovarian cancer. So she was trying Mm -hmm. to develop AMH as a treatment for ovarian cancer. So I joined her lab actually originally thinking I'd be working on uh, ovarian cancer. And uh, one of the first things that that I needed to do as a postdoc was to find a way to produce large amounts of this hormone. Mm. So it's, it's a very difficult hormone to produce. It's not like a steroid, you know, where you can do some chemical synthesis or a peptide. Mm-hmm. It's actually a, 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 a dimer uh, of a large protein mm-hmm. that has covalent bonds and, and needs to be cleaved. So there's a lot of post-translational processing. So it's a very difficult task. Mm-hmm. And basically what we found is that, you know, if you could make some small modifications to the sequence, you could get regular mammalian cells like CHO cells to produce it and secrete it in the media. And we had to devise a way to purify it from the media. Mm-hmm. And then what we were left with is a large quantity of protein that we could finally study in vivo. So mm-hmm. th- this, was, this was basically what had been holding back the, the field is that you just couldn't have enough to, to look at its effect in vivo. You could do all these in vitro experiments. You could have little amounts. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to know what it does in a, you know, in a whole mouse, you need lots of it. And mm-hmm. then we finally had it. And then the, the second innovation is that we thought, why not put it in a, in a gene therapy vector? Because then you don't even need to purify it. Mm-hmm. You can put it in a virus, infect the mouse, and then the mouse can make its own hormone. Mm-hmm. And then that allows us to study you know, very long-term uh, exposure to exogenous hormone. Because the, the, in this particular case, we infect muscle cells, and the muscles secrete mm-hmm. the hormone. It goes into circulation, and it acts on the ovary. When did your journey with, with this is, sounds like it's just been long gestating and, and going through many phases, when did you actually start on the research into this? Right. So finally I had access to these two tools and I was supposed to study ovarian cancer and, and, I, right. and I was, and then I started treating mice and we saw some, you know, mixed effects. Sometimes we could suppress or we could slow down the rate of growth of the tumors, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, you know, at the back of my mind, I was a reproductive biologist, mm -hmm. and and I had read all basically all of the papers of, of the different hormones that could affect uh, follicular development. Mm -hmm. So I knew that AMH had, a, had an effect on follicles. I also knew that nobody had ever tested it in vivo because mm -hmm. you know, we just didn't have that tool. So I thought, well, while I'm doing these experiments, you know, I was nearing the end of my postdoc, starting to think about, you know, potentially forming my own lab and what I would work on. I'm like, well, well, why don't I use this as an opportunity to look at the effect mm -hmm. of AMH on, on the ovaries? And I always remember, you know, the first batch of mice where I looked at the ovaries and uh, the ovaries had shrunk. They, they hmm. were about a tenth of the size that they should be. And I had looked at hundreds, thousands of ovaries. So I, I, knew, I, I knew what to look for. So I immediately recognized the phenotype. And, you know, you see this in one mouse, you think, well, you know, maybe this is just a strange mouse. It happens sometimes, you know, that's nature. Look at the second mouse, same thing. The ovaries are shrunken. And, and I didn't even need to open the third mouse. I already knew what was going to happen. And all of them, the, the, the ovaries had shrunk. And, and, you know, knowing that AMH had a presumed function in, in, in slowing down the rate of activation of primordial mm -hmm. follicles, I, I think the, the, the conclusion was easy to make that probably what had happened is that by putting superphysiological levels of AMH, mm -hmm. we had stopped follicles from developing. So the ovarian reserve, the primordial follicles were still there and dormant. Mm -hmm. We showed this by sectioning the ovary. We could find them. It's just that they were not getting activated and they were not growing. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the bulk of the, the, the volume of an ovary is growing follicles. And in this case, since there was no growing follicles, the ovary looked tiny. It looked like a neonatal ovary. Mm -hmm. Neonatal ovaries also don't have large growing follicles. Mm -hmm. It's about the exact same size. Wow. I want to take this opportunity to ask you, as you're doing this work, and of course the title of, of the wonderful talk, we're here, by the way, at ASRM 2023 in New Orleans. Uh, you gave a wonderful talk this morning you know, novel non-hormonal contraceptives, why is it important for us to seek out to yeah. find new contraceptives? So with this finding that we knew we could block follicular development, you know, one of the obvious applications is that, you know, this would be a contraceptive. And in fact, we demonstrated that in mouse and rats mm -hmm. and then recently in cats. So if you, if you block follicles from developing, you've got a contraceptive. Now, technically it is hormonal because the AMH is a hormone, but usually what we mean by non-hormonal is non-steroidal. And, and the reason why we need non-steroidal steroidal contraceptives is that, you know, current contraceptive, it's true, they work really well. They're very high rates of efficacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but you do, you do need to take a pill every day. And for some people, the side effects of those pills mm. uh, can be very severe. So, you know, one of the statistics that I shared, uh, actually two important statistics. One is that 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So, you know, clearly there's a lot of women that need access to contraceptives, but don't have it. Mm -hmm. And second... You know, even those that do have access to contraceptives, about 30% of them will experience side effects, and 50% of those will have severe side effects. So th mm -hmm. that's the reason why many people discontinue the use of oral contraceptives. You know, sometimes uh, they'll go for IUDs, but again, that's not applicable to everybody. It's not everybody that is comfortable or, or doesn't have also side effects from the IUD. So there's still an unmet need here of women that can't take their oral contraceptives and can't take IUDs, mm -hmm. but could potentially take uh, you know, another yeah. uh, contraceptive that works in a different uh, manner. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing stuff. Your, your time is precious, and uh, I really appreciate you being able to come by the show today. Thank you so much for being able to take some time out and be here. My pleasure. It's always fun to share my science. Uh, fantastic. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us, ASRM at ASRM.org. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. 
This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.